Podcasts are an independent way for podcasters like me to bring a local voice to your ears. At the Spent the Rent Podcast, we strive to raise awareness of topics that affect the often underrepresented. Our title sponsor, Oregon Cashflow Pro, offers free money management advice that can help you take control of your finances. At OregonCashflowPro.com, you will find videos to guide you towards your goal of financial freedom. For more info, there will be a link in the show notes. The following podcast is available on all major streaming sites, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. You can now listen to all previous episodes, donate to the podcast, and buy shirts directly from the Spent the Rent podcast at our newly designed official website, strpod.com. Welcome to the Spent the Rent Podcast. I am your host, Patty Rose. My guest today is chair from the Democratic Party of Lane County and the director of Emergence Drug Treatment Center, Chris Wig. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So this is the third time that you've been on, which is great. We're building a good relationship. Uh, I, you know, Now that I've gotten more involved as a precinct committee person, even though I didn't make all my phone calls because I'm bad at it. Yeah, you can do it today. It's not a big deal. Sure, that's Hopefully true. This is kind of what I've what I've always been thinking is that that to me I was going to look at the people that hadn't voted, and that's what we're doing today. The final push. We're going to talk about a lot of stuff. There's only a couple days to mail in your ballot, and we'll talk about that a little bit at the end of this. Uh, I think everybody in town in Eugene and Springfield is is dropping it at drop boxes. But if you live rurally, you got to do what you got to do to get it in. So. Unless you're coming to town to drop it at a drop box, you might need to mail it. But that date is October 27th is the deadline to, to have it postmarked. Is that correct? Well, it's not exactly the deadline, but that's how like that is the date that we're encouraging people to put their ballot in the mailbox in order to be sure that it's going to make it on time. But, you know, that being said, if you can't vote any other way, fill it out and put it into the mail. And that we I checked in with the Democratic Party of Oregon. Uh, last night, they're keeping track of this, and that they say that Oregon has 20 years of experience voting by mail, that we do not anticipate delays, and that our union postal workers are going to come through for us. So that being said, we're encouraging people that you can vote by mail or Dropbox up until Tuesday, the 27th. After that, if you can take it to a Dropbox, but if you can't, you can still get it into the mail and we still think it's going to make it on time. Yeah, that's good. Now you can check your ballot too. If you've already dropped it off in a, in a Dropbox or if, if you've mailed it, you can go online and check it. So uh, I'm, you know, that's, you just go to the secretary of state's yeah. website, but you know, you can just, you know, Google check my ballot and then yeah, it's really Google easy to Oregon, find. My vote. They'll, so, they'll do it. I looked mine up and that Celine and my ballots were received on Monday. We put them in the drop box last weekend and they checked them into county elections on Monday. So we've already voted. Is there any confirmation that it changes from received to like that it counts that it actually I mean, or does the confirmation kind of stay at received? I'm sure that if it was received, it counts. I think it stays at received. I, I haven't ever checked that because they don't count until the day of the election that what they start to do is. Right. So there's a two-step counting process. And man, I, I hope I get this right. But the two steps are, the first step is that they validate the signature. Because, you know, you fill out your ballot, you put it in. Some people don't like the secrecy sleeve, but that's optional. Put it in the secrecy sleeve or don't, but you put it in your envelope, seal the envelope, and you sign your ballot, right? And that the thing that tells the election workers that your ballot is valid is, does your signature match the signature that they have on file? And see that I got something in the mail. This is kind of crazy. So I got something in the mail that said that I had voted in three elections with a ma an unmatched signature so that it was time that I couldn't, my next ballot would be thrown out. And so because I signed my name without my middle initial or mi middle name. And so I redid it because I'm always, every time I've done my ballot, I've signed it with my middle initial, but that's not how I signed my name. So they made me re-register. It was pretty interesting. Oh, I don't know wow. the party went out and sent stuff unless it was fraud. No, but the party uh -oh. went out and sent me this thing. I know I'm kidding, but like, 
I did it, and I so I was just like, well, I hope my ID, the way that I signed my ID is without it. So it's kind of interesting because I got something in the mail from the Lane County Elections Office that said, looks like your signature. They're really do- doing their, their work this time. Yeah, they, they use a computer, too, to match it sometimes. And that what they'll do, but that if your signature doesn't match, it doesn't mean that your vote doesn't count. What that means, so let's let's kind of walk through that if your signature matches, what they do is they put your pallet, your ballot, they separate, at that point, they separate your ballot from the signature. So signature verified, then they separate your signature from the ballot so that you have a secret ballot. They validated the signature, the ballot inside of this envelope is valid. They separate that and then they, you know, put it in the wheelbarrow or stack of ballots or whatever. Right. And they don't count those ballots though until election day. Right. And so we don't know who we know all who has voted, but we don't know what they voted for ever. Now, right. if your signature doesn't match, what they do is that they will reach out to you to say there's a signature mismatch. Uh, Is this your ballot? And that you have the opportunity to go down to county elections and like re-sign to confirm that that is in fact your ballot. And so just because your signature doesn't match does not mean that your ballot doesn't count. It still counts. Um, And so that that's something that people, I feel like one of the baseless talking points against vote by mail is about, you know, well, what about your signatures? And it's like, well, surprise, they figured out how to make that work because it's really important that people's vote counts. It's one of the most important things sure. in the world. So we're going to figure out how to do that. So it, can you tell me real quick, uh, ballot harvesting? I mean, there's, is there rules against someone else delivering like four ballots for their neighbor? No. no? no. So, so, so ballot can't... harvesting is, a. Uh, um, I think that that is, a. Uh, a uh, hyperbolic term that sure, the right sure. uses to try to blow out a proportion, like somehow you're, you're harvesting, like you're doing something you shouldn't do. Whereas ballot collection is, I think that it is a really valuable service that people, volunteers can perform. Um, so I have offered to collect ballots for, I'm a neighborhood leader, just like you. I've offered to collect ballots from anybody in my neighborhood. I sent everybody on my turf a letter introducing myself. I'm Chris Wig. I'm a neighborhood leader assigned to our precinct. You know, here's my phone number. Here's my email. If you have any questions about the ballot measures, if you need help turning in your ballot, I, I'll go pick up anybody's ballot from their house. I'll take it to the Dropbox and I'll even text them a picture. I'll take a picture of me putting their ballot into the Dropbox. I'll text them a picture so that they know that it's done. And I, not very many people ask for that, but yeah. I think that ballot collection is really, really, um, it's a really good thing to do because some people, they either, now it's not as big of a deal because it's the ballots are postage paid, but back in the day, people didn't have stamps or that they right. might have a mobility challenge or they don't drive or so they can't get to the Dropbox. And so offering to pick up a ballot you know, I think is a really good thing to do as long as you're doing that in a way that is honest and genuine and right. not, um, you know, so, you know, and it's, it's important to say that if you are listening or, or watching this and you want to do that for some of your neighbors, it needs to be the next thing you do. <laughs> like you collect the ballot and then you immediately go drop it in a drop box. You can't leave it in your car for, and then go do some errands because yeah. then there's potential that something could go bad. So it needs to litter. If you're going to do that for somebody, it needs to be like, hand it to me. I will take it immediately. That's the so, way that it's got to go. In the normal, not COVID times and COVID has changed all the ways about how we campaign that what we would do would be uh, if you were out canvassing, most ballot collection happens when people are canvassing. So when you you would collect a couple of ballots over the course of your turf, you would come back to the DPLC office and that you would uh, turn them in there. And then at the end of the night, every single day, we would take all of the ballots because people will drop their ballots off at the DPLC office too. We would have a ballot box and it would say in really like 72 point font right across the front, not an official ballot drop box. Right. And we would also put up some of those not official ballot drop boxes at um, some other places like Lane Community College. UO has a ballot box, but LCC did not have one. So we loaned them one of our boxes. We put one at, a, I remember, at one of the, the senior centers or a senior apartment building. We um, had one go out the McKenzie one year. And so what but whenever we do that, some someone has to be responsible for every day because your ballots can't sit in there every day at the end of the day pick up the ballots, take them to the official ballot drop box. Right. Kevin Cronin, by the way, is the master of ballot collection. Like yeah. That guy organizes the greatest ballot collections the world has ever seen. 
Well, that's awesome. At the end of this, we're actually going to talk about some of the unsung heroes of local elections. Okay. So that'll be that'll be a good opportunity for us to talk about that. So let's get into Measure 110. Now, this is the one that I wanted to have you on to talk about primarily. Uh, 110 is the Drug Decriminalization and Addiction Treatment Initiative. And you have been a pretty strong proponent against it. Uh, and we're going to talk about why, talk about what it is, talk about some of your fears. I don't know if those are the right words, but some of the reasons that you are definitely taking a serious pause about this one. So let's talk about, like I said, drug decriminalization and addiction treatment initiative. Uh, can you explain to us what the proposal is and what it would do? So what the proposal will do will be that it will, um, I'm going to try to do this without editorializing too much, but sure. it will make possession of dangerous, harmful, illegal drugs decriminalized. So instead of a misdemeanor, it will become a violation. Um, and that the amounts of possession are one gram of heroin. And for people who most listeners probably do not know about amounts of heroin. So one dose of heroin is 0.1 of a gram. So that is 10 user units of heroin. Um, methamphetamine, two grams. Again, a a user dose is 0.1 grams. So 20 doses of methamphetamine, uh, two, two grams of cocaine, uh, 40 Oxycontin, uh, 40 user units of LSD, um, and then some other drugs that are less common. I, I don't remember what the amount of uh, psilocybin mushrooms is, but the gist is that it will make those things um, not legal, but not have a misdemeanor penalty. And so what the violation penalty is, is that if a person is, uh, you know, charged with possession as a violation, that they're, the consequence is a hundred dollar fine or going to a new, and that this measure funds this new service of a screening and assessment um, center. It's called an addiction recovery center, but they provide screening and assessment services and referrals to drug treatment. And that that's what the bulk of the money of the measure pays to establish these um, addiction recovery centers. So and the way so, that it's being the way that it's being marketed is that it's a decriminalization of you know personal use drugs. Meaning, like if you do have over a certain amount, like you had just listed the amounts, that it, you can still get a charge for uh, intent to sell and that kind of stuff. But it, at the same time, that would become a misdemeanor and not a felony for those charges. Is that correct? No, that's not a part okay. of the measure at all. Okay. So, but, and, and also, uh, you know, you had mentioned the uh, treatment centers or whatever that would be. Can you kind of uh, elaborate on that? That it's more, it's more of a referral program to get somebody to where they would go. Is that correct? Yeah. So the thing, I mean, the biggest reason why I'm against this ballot measure. So, I, I mean, I am against decriminalizing drugs outright. Like, I don't think that that's a good idea. I think that if people could quit using drugs without it being illegal, they would quit. But the thing that makes them addicted to drugs is that they can't quit. And so the structure of the legal system is necessary to help people create the conditions in their life in which they will actually follow through with quitting using substances. And again, if, if this was just a ballot measure about mushrooms or about, I mean, mushrooms are, are not great, but I, you know, heroin and methamphetamine are a big, are serious. I yeah. mean, it's a big deal. Like yeah. if you have heroin on you or methamphetamine on you in your pocket or in your car ever, ever, no, no limit to how low the amount is. You have a serious, very serious problem and that you need a lot of help because people who are not addicted to drugs do not carry those substances in their pocket. And that I think that, you know, that there's a, kind of a backtracking on, well, that these other crimes like stealing or identity theft or whatever, the other crimes that people who, a lot of them who have substance use disorders will commit to get the drugs, like that those are still illegal. So people will um, still can be convicted of those, but that there's two things about that. One, you know, if you think about most crimes, uh, and I, I believe that drug possession is the same way, it's not illegal because of what happens to you, right? Like it's illegal because of its effect on the community. Sure. And that, you know, assault, if you punched me in the face, that assault is not 
illegal because it hurts your fist. It's illegal because it hurts my face, right? Like that that is an effect on the community that is detrimental to our well-being, people's personal safety and security. Possession of drugs is no different. That people who have drugs on them are perpetrating other offenses, they're lying, they're stealing from their families, that they are, um, I mean, certainly parents using drugs, that there are huge concerns there. There's a lot of abuse that happens in intimate partner relationships related to drugs. And the drugs are a major contributor to all of those things. If you, I mean, if you break down some of the criminology, substance abuse is one of the eight central criminogenic risk need factors, which is the things that are, you know, and again, not like Prediction is not destiny, but like the aspects of that creates, that causes people to commit, it doesn't cause, but that we can predict that people are likely to recidivate and commit new crimes if they're using substances. That was an inarticulate explanation. I apologize. No, I, I get but, you. I mean, we're just talking. So there's the gist of that. But also the treatment that we're talking about is not actually treatment, that it is assessment and referral. And that right. one of the things that we know about in Oregon is that we know how assessment and referral works because we have that system for DUIs. And so if somebody gets a DUI that they, the first they'll go to court, you know, they plead guilty or they get convicted or no contest or whatever. The first thing they have to do is go to what is called an alcohol and drug screening specialist or an ATIS. And at that ATIS, they pay, I believe it's $150 to get an assessment about, well, you know, you were driving drunk, so surprise, you have an alcohol use disorder. And then, you know, if you have any other substance abuse problems, and then they refer you to a treatment center like Emergence Willamette Family, Center for Family Development, Serenity Lane, and so on. However, because of the way that the Oregon administrative rules for healthcare works, the assessment that they do does not, we cannot use that to treat them. We have to do our own assessment as every treatment provider always has to do a new assessment every time a person comes into their program, because that's one of the ways that the Medicaid and the Oregon Health Plan can make sure that we're not committing fraud, because right. that there is a documented assessment that justifies the services that we deliver. And so that $150 that that person paid to the alcohol and drug screening specialist, they might as well have lit that money on fire. And so that's my fear of what we're talking about here with measure 110 is that it will make it so that people don't quit and that when they do want to quit, they go to a place where they're not offered the services to quit. And then it's just more down the line. So and it takes a lot. It's a longer process, essentially. So I, I think so. now you are the director of, of emergence drug treatment center and in Lane County. And so explain to us the process, you know, somebody gets stopped by police, they're in possession. Only the only thing that they are charged with is a possession of, of we'll say methamphetamines. Okay. So they didn't have stolen property, you know, explain to me the process. So then they go to jail, they go to, maybe they get released, but they have a court date and then the court, then what happens? How does that process work? So I would, I mean, I would just insert into there that even if that is the only offense that they were charged with or convicted of, a lot of times there are also other infractions as well. Right. Um, and that that was just not one of the things that I see a lot is people who are arrested on three, four, five charges of, you know, possession, theft, um, identity theft, uh, and other trespassing and other charges. And then what will happen will be the prosecution, their, their plea deal will be that they will drop all of the charges except for the possession and then on the possession, they will enter drug court. And so I'm not the director of all of emergence. I'm the director of one program. Your location. And emergence sure. has a five, about five programs. And so the program that I am the director of is the program. It's called the Focus Treatment Court Program. And that we serve people who are enrolled in the Lane County Adult Treatment Court, Lane County Veterans Treatment Court, and Lane County Mental Health Court. And we provide mental health and alcohol and drug treatment services to all of those folks. So I, you know, I feel pretty confident that I've spent a lot of time with people sure. who are doing the work to change. And that that is part of why, um, I mean, I, I don't want to lose people and I don't want people to not get the opportunity to change until it's too late. Um, that drug courts are the most 
researched and most effective criminal justice system intervention that exists. Sure. Lane County has a really proud and long history of drug courts that we had the first drug court in Oregon right here in Eugene and the 22nd drug court in the entire nation started in 1994. And so that's a long track record of helping people. Right. So now when marijuana was first put on the ballot, it failed, right? Because the way that it was written, people didn't feel like for one, that's a business argument. I think Mar- we're talking about two different things when we're talking about methamphetamines and marijuana. There's yeah, no completely different. And, and, but, but just, just as an example of the way that things are written, I'm, I'm kind of getting towards a long winded proposal here that that's just measure 110 doesn't cover it. You know, the, one of the issues I have with possession charges for people and why I actually was looking at this, like, wow, this is a step to end the war on drugs. Cause the war on drugs has been a failure in my opinion. Hmm. Now, when someone has multiple meth charges for possession, they're felonies right, right now for, for possession of a small amount. Like you were talking like 0. 0.1, 0. 0.2, 0. 0.3. It's a felony, correct? Not necessarily. That if it's their first or second possession charge, that it's a misdemeanor. And okay. the third or more is a felony. Okay. And that's significant. So then if you have a habitual problem, then yes, it kind of amplifies. But I mean, with somebody with a felony charge that has gone through treatment, there's ways for things to be removed, but felonies are harder to get removed. So if you have had a you know continuous problem, it well, makes it really difficult for it to be removed from your record once you have turned your life around. You know? Yeah, so that- drug charges are pretty hard to expunge. And so I would offer like, you know, if we were serious about actually helping people who have substance use disorders, we would not be talking about decriminalizing drugs on the front end. We would be talking about expunging the records of people who have, um, you know, gone through, not even have gone through a treatment program. Like if you have a substance use disorder, if, if this ballot measure said something like, if you have five years, I'm pulling numbers out of the air. I don't, I don't feel sure, strong. Sure, sure. We're just, yeah. Five years of um, no new arrests or two years. If you can prove that you've completed a treatment program, you should have your charges either automatically expunged or expunged for a very low like filing fee. That's not, you don't have to go to court. You don't have to hire a lawyer, that kind of stuff. Like if that was what this was about, I would support it. Like, right. I think that that is a very, we don't want to have consequences that are going off all the way into the future, but that that's also, you know, that's part of the um, how the change process can be so hard because, you know, if people don't quit using, they won't be in a position where it matters that the felonies are preventing them from housing, from housing and job opportunities because they're still using and right. that they're still engaging in incredibly unhealthy activities. And that I, you know, I just want to reiterate that it is really hard for people to quit drugs And that one of the reasons why people do drugs in the first place, I would say the main reason that I see, and just as a caveat, the people who are served, who are in my program are 95 or 98% people on the Oregon health plan, that these are people who are low income, have a long history of drug use. This is not your, your housewife from South Eugene who had two glasses of wine and popped a Xanax. Like, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about people who have been through a lot in their life. And that the reason that they start using drugs is 100% not because they're a bad person, because inside of all of them is a good person. I've seen it. There's maybe three or four people in six years that I can think of that at the core inside of them, there was not something there that was good and wholesome and rewarding, right? That the reason people use drugs is because in the moment, that is the best coping skill that they have because of the trauma that they have experienced, because of the things that they've been through in their life, whether it is with their family of origin, whether it is because they are living on the street, whether it's because they have been in a war, all of the different traumatic things that happen to people. And we're just now learning about you know, how trauma affects the brain and how that can affect people's behaviors. And so the people who are in a drug treatment program are good people, but that because of all of the things that have happened, whether the things that happened is things that they had control over or things that they didn't have control over, that all of that has added up to a really complicated situation where it's very hard to quit. There's a physiological dependence on the drug that the social environment, when people come into the program, 
100% of the people that they know and hang out with and talk to are other drug users. And that over a history of their life, sometimes for not good reasons and sometimes for very understandable reasons, that they have an attitude of not... Um, uh, we, it's the criminal literature is about antisocial attitudes, but not like isolating antisocial, like not supporting the law or not supporting conventional structures in society and things like that, which, you know, given the things that have happened to these folks, I, that is a rational response. Like yeah. trauma is a disruption. It is a rational answer to coping with terrible things that have oh. happened. I've gone through, I'm pretty, pretty open on this podcast about my battle with alcoholism. And now we're talking about different things again. You know, alcohol is one of the most awful things about alcohol is that it is socially acceptable to get too over out of control to a lot of people, you know, every once in a while. Whereas to casually do drugs is pretty out of the norm as far as like people like, yeah, you can just once in a while do meth. I mean, it's just, you can't just once in a while do meth. It's the, it's a terrible drug, mm -hmm. but I can tell you about quitting an, with an, you know, dealing with an addiction, I should say that the only reason that I was able to get out of it is because not only did I have a support system, but I had the tools from my childhood. So I dealt with trauma and things that I like you're talking about, but I was also told as a child, how special I was, how much I was loved and those kind of things. And so I had the tools, it was still in there. For a lot of people, the, my experience, and I, you totally hit it on the head about there's this whole, you were saying antisocial kind of behavior or where you're just rejecting social norms because you're not accepted in that because you've made choices. Like, I don't want to get off the point, but I went to a dinner party after I had gotten sober a couple years after it took literally two years at least. And I was like, wow, I am not having anxiety. This is a really big milestone for me because I was so used to just getting shit faced at this, at this part. Anytime I went to a social gathering, I'd be sitting, sitting next to the fridge, next to the beer drinking. And I was a mess. And I definitely, it, it like mounted. And so I totally know exactly what you're talking about. It's so totally on point. Well, and that I want to say that that's not off the point, that this is, this is the point and that this is why yeah. I'm so concerned about this measure is like you're saying two years. So being in a treatment court program takes on average 14 to 18 months, right? That that is a, like a, just a normal residential program for someone with private insurance is 28 days. A normal residential program for somebody on OHP is 90 days. A normal outpatient program a lot of times is like um, 12 to 16 weeks, so three to four months. And so treatment court is one of the, I mean, one of the rewarding things about treatment court is that you get to see people through the entire part of their change process, but that it takes a long time to change. It takes a long time to, to change and then to solidify those changes into new habits. And maybe there will be a lapse or a relapse and then working through that with the support of your counselor and your peer support. And that without court mandated programs, I don't know if that kind of treatment will really exist because the reason of the duration of that is because the court demands it, that the court right. is the driver of a lot of that. And it's not just because there's one judge and it's that judge's opinion, right? It's because of the entire corpus of research on treatment courts that, like I said, treatment courts are the most researched part of the criminal justice system because when they started 30 years ago, the idea of we're going to not send people to jail for crimes was like scandalous. It was like, oh, well, how could that even possibly work? Because we need to send people to jail. And so they had, they had to prove that it actually works. And they did. They did prove that. And I wanted to just touch really quickly on something that you said about the war on drugs. Um, one of the things that is hard for a lot of um, criminal justice advocates in Oregon, I think, to um, that it's hard on them because they're advocating for these changes, but Oregon has resolved most of the low hanging fruit in terms of criminal justice reform that one, we do not have private prisons. So that, that we don't have, there's not a single private prison in Oregon, which that's like the biggest driver of the war on drugs is private prisons who give money to politicians to have ridiculous sentences for drugs. Like, I mean, marijuana, people can still go to prison in the United States in some places for marijuana. And yeah. that, that drives that prison industrial complex. We don't have that here. Most of the people who are in prison in Oregon are in prison for mandatory minimums for measure 11 crimes and measure 57. 
And so if we are going to lower the prison population, which I absolutely believe we should do, we are going to need to have a reckoning with how do we rehabilitate and help people who've been convicted of those violent crimes and those property crimes, which I mean, again, like measure 11 is popular. So that it's going to be hard. That's going to be a really a much deeper conversation than one ballot measure over two months. Like that. That's that's some real soul searching in there. The other thing about the war on drugs in Oregon is that people do not go to prison for possession of illegal drugs in Oregon. They they do not. We looked into it um, at the beginning of this campaign, and that what we found is that all of the people who are in prison for possession are all people who were pled down from distribution as part of a plea bargain. So in Lane County, um, I, I've worked at treatment court for six years, so I have seen a, a range of sentences. The normal, you know, quote unquote normal sentence for a felony possession of methamphetamine or heroin is 10 days in county jail with um, credit for time served and eligibility for alternatives like road crew or community service based on the, the risk matrix that they use. And so the idea that people are going to prison for drugs is false. That, that is 100% not accurate. Now, the real problem is those long-term consequences that it has housing implications for the future for people who have felony convictions that has, um, you know, in terms of employment, which one of the really great accomplishments of the Democratic majority in the Oregon legislature in the last few years is passing a ban the box law so that people um, can apply for jobs and not have to even on the first glance disclose criminal convictions so that people will be given a fair consideration for who they are now, not be discounted or thrown away because of something that happened 20 years ago. Except for violent crime, correct? Like for, violent, all crime. Yeah. for all crime, that it is not legal for an employer in Oregon to put a question on their job applications about criminal history. Wow. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, They're allowed yeah. to check once they're going to offer you a job. And that there are certain jobs where there there are disqual there are, there's caveats right like if it's a job where there's going to be handling money theft and identity theft charges that that's relevant you know to to know about but most of the time that the point of that is to give people who have changed give them a fair chance right. and I I think that everybody I mean we have constructed just this unforgiving society where we are waiting for people to make a mistake and then we that gives us an excuse to throw them away. And it's unconscionable that, that that is American society. And you see it all the way at the top with rhetoric from the president himself. Right. And the whole, you know, cadre of othering language for other people. But the fact of the matter is 95 or 98% of people who commit a crime and go to prison are going to come back to our community. Like that's not an other group of people. That's us. That's our neighbors. That's our family members. Those are people, they, they go to our church, they work with us. And so how do we make people who have been ostracized, make them a part of us. Because like you said, that those social associations and attitudes, right? If people have a sense of belonging, that there's not uh, others and us, there's just one group of people that it's a lot easier for them to ascribe to the values, the, the community values that we're talking about, right? Like don't steal, don't assault people, don't use heroin and methamphetamine. Right. So I, you know, yeah, I mean, we're, go, we're going on, we're going on, on a little bit of a dive here, but I think that that's all really relevant. No, I think it's stuff. totally relevant. The one thing, and this isn't really, you know, judicially, this isn't in the courts, but in social opinion, one of the things that we want a change, why a proposal like this would be attractive to people is because they want a change in the way that thing, people are treated humanely. Now, I hear me out with this because I know the work that you do, you're passionate about the people that come in, your patients, whatever you want to call them, in the treatment centers, and you have compassion and empathy towards these individuals. You're showing it now with the way that you talk about it. But what we experience a lot in our communities and our society, like with George Floyd, there's a lot of people on social media and I mean, I guess I almost can't even really put too much emphasis on people because there's a lot of nasty people out there that are keyboard warriors. But they say with George Floyd, well, it's fine that he was shot because he was a crackhead. 
<laughs> and it's insanity, you know. What, so what people mean is that it's fine that he was shot because he's black. I, I mean, that's what I was getting to. Yeah. Because the thing is, is that they're like, what about you know? Because someone like myself, I've talked about it openly on the show. I've done illicit drugs, and fortunately for me, like I said before, I was given the tools as a child to overcome that because I was given the the belief in myself that I had a willpower that I could regain. That's what I had to tell myself to quit drinking. It's like today you take back your willpower. And it was the hardest thing I've ever done, but you know, it's just, we, I know that these, these bills are attractive to certain people because they see how the disproportionate treatment of people of color in drug, you know, charges in Oregon, the numbers, I read it on Oregonian 4.9% of drug charges are, are people of color. And are African-Americans where 1.9% of the population is African-American. Mm. Those numbers are not to me, in my opinion, just face value are not a big enough thing because there's so many different factors that go into that whole situation. Well, and that that's not acceptable. They did a study in Portland where, and I, I remember the person who told me about this was Mark Gissner, who's the police auditor in Eugene. And so I don't have the stats on this. This is so this is an anecdotal story, but you can look it up maybe if anybody cares sure. to, that they did a study on police stops. Um, one of the biggest areas of police reform that is beyond needed, it's, it's necessary, is around the issue of racial profiling. And that in the language of the, you know, the police auditor types, that that is called, you know, professional policing or bias-based policing. And so they did a study and they found that people of color, um, African-Americans and Latinos were four times more likely to get pulled over than white drivers. And when they were pulled over, they were four times more likely, maybe it wasn't that they were, it, that's not, I said that wrong, I take it back. So what happened was they were four times more likely once they were pulled over right. for the officer to ask them to, um, if they could do a search uh, can, of consensual, if they would consent to have their vehicle searched. Well, what happened was that African-American and Latino drivers were four times less likely than white people to actually have contraband. So if you were actually profiling based on what does the data say about criminal behavior, you would be pulling over white people four times more right. frequently and asking them four times more frequently to search their car because they are four times more likely to have contraband on them, according to this one study, and that no one study is the end-all be-all, right? But so, you know, when I see the information about that um, people of color are absolutely more <clears throat> that disproportionately represented in the arrest statistics around illegal drugs. It, that one is incontrovertibly true. And that that is an outrage and should be an outrage to all of society. And that the way that we fix that though, is not make illegal drugs legal, the way that we right. fix that is that we fix the police, that we yes. put in place clear expectations and that we hold people accountable to the expectation. If, you know, if there is an officer who is pulling over a disproportionate amount of people of color, we need to have an intervention about that. Is why, right. why is that happening, right? And that doesn't mean we should just fire somebody because of their stats. It means we need to look deeper. What is it something about their beat? that that would be the case? Is there something about their assignment or is there a thing that's under the officer's control discretionary where they're doing that? And maybe that person needs tra additional training. Maybe they need to, um, you know, they need either like technical training or implicit bias training, or maybe that person shouldn't be a police officer. I mean, though everything is on the table, but the issue is not with the people, the issue is with the police in right. that situation. And that I, I feel like in some ways that that stat about how, well, this will, um, if the, the racial impact statement for Measure 110 says, this will um, mitigate 95% of the racial disparity in drug arrests. Well, one, 95% of zero is still zero. So yes, of course it will mitigate 95% of discrepancies because you're not going to have any arrests at all. But also it lets racist police officers off the hook for malfeasance and that right. we should be doing the hard work. Like this is just the easy catch-all solution, measure 110, that if we were gonna do the hard work, we would be, and that there are jurisdictions, specifically specifically the city of Eugene is doing a lot of this work, um, that Mike Schmidt is now the district attorney in Portland, that he was, the, um, he was the executive director of the Criminal Justice Commission, which is a clearinghouse, a 
data on law enforcement for the state. He's doing tough work, that there are people in Oregon who are doing that work and doing it well, and that we should be demanding that instead of, you know, the kangaroo court that is happening with the Springfield police. Right. Yeah. And we could be here all day talking about that. So we do need to move on. So I just want to mention that in the show notes of this episode, I've provided links to the op-ed. Was it you and uh, the district attorney? Yeah. District attorney Patty Perlow and I uh, co-wrote a guest viewpoint for the register guard. And so there's a, there's a link to that op-ed. I know that with register guard online, if you don't, if you don't subscribe, then you can only read a small section. So we've also provided an op-ed written by former governor, John Kitzhaber, that is in the opposition to this. So uh, you can read that as well and and more thorough. And honestly, Google, anytime you're voting, if you're unclear, you can always just Google measure 110 Oregon. And there's a very good Oregonian story that I read that that's where I got my statistics from. One of the kind of interesting things that they talked about on that was that this has been supported by Mark Zuckerberg and his wife, Priscilla Chan. They donated $500,000 to this cause. I think it's a Band-Aid, and I think it's something that we need to take a step back and a pause before going through with it, because like we had talked about you know, here, that this isn't going to fix the policing. You know, So that's a different issue, but people uh, are frustrated because progress is slow, and so sometimes these things can actually lead to a less safe community. And I think that that's what you're trying to tell us today to plea that this could lead to, an, an, you know. Well, I mean, yes. And that it will lead to a less, it will lead to less paths into recovery right. for people who are experiencing and suffering from addiction. That the, um, the group that advocates for the recovery community in Oregon, Oregon Recovers, is opposed to the ballot measure the Trade Association for the Treatment Providers, the Oregon Council of Behavioral Health, is opposed to the measure. Um, that a lot, I mean, those are the people who know <laughs> that those sure. are the people who the ballot measure should have been constructed with their input. But, you know, we, the last thing that we haven't talked about about the ballot measure that voters need to know is that the Drug Policy Alliance, which is a group from New York State, that they are the backers of this measure, um, that they've spent millions and millions and millions of dollars on provi- on putting this measure forward, um, that many organizations endorsed it. Um, some of them have even pulled back their support because they feel like they were misled, most notably the Urban League of Portland um, pulled back their support of the measure. And that, you know, a lot of the the Drug Policy Alliance did not work with Oregon stakeholders in the recovery community and the legislature with the treatment for it. They did not work with them to come up with this, that they figured something that they could get that would pass because this is the first exploratory step towards running ballot measures in other states to try to decriminalize drugs in other places. Like the, I would go so far as to say that the Drug Policy Alliance does not care about people who are experiencing addiction or recovery, that their agenda is about the policy of decriminalization nationwide. They spent millions and millions of dollars on it and that, that, that we are not, we should not be a guinea pig for the rest of the nation. I, yeah, I don't I agree that with that. Be. I agree I with that. It's dangerous. We already see the rhetoric that Trump is using for what's going on in Portland un- in a different situation. Mm-hmm. But when they talk about blue states and the decline of of whatever, you know, the the citizen, you know, the the experience in a blue state. I mean, we see it with houselessness and whatnot, and people want to associate that with drugs. And we could be here forever talking about this. But there is some truth to if you just let people do drugs, if we're the first state that's doing it, it's going to be enticing to people to come here that are like, wow, I could go there and not get in trouble, especially for bordering states, you know, California, Idaho's got super strict drug laws. And kids like the we didn't even touch on the fact that this would decriminalize drugs for children as well. So, so um, there's no age limit. Like, it, no. wow. So if a child, right. And a gram of heroin or two grams of methamphetamine is enough to kill an adolescent. It's enough to kill an adult under some circumstances, but an adolescent that will kill you that an adolescent who say a 16 year old teenager has a gram of heroin on them. They will have a lesser consequence, a hundred dollar fine or a health assessment than they would if they had alcohol or marijuana on them, which is an MIP, which is a $265 fine. Wow. So that is a, a very perverse. Yeah. Incentive. And so we then- got, a, we got a lot of stuff to cover. So we do got to move on, but I do again, 
There's links in the show notes to your op-ed as well as uh, former Governor Kitzhaber's op-ed. And you can Google Measure 110 Oregon and, and read a bunch about it you know, for and against. Uh, we're coming to the crunch time. So so a lot of people already voted. I'm not going to lie. I already voted. And I wish I would have had this conversation with you sooner because I voted in support of it. And my view now would be a little bit different. Uh, so that's kind of the pros and cons of early voting. There's still this push for more information because a lot of the people, this is okay. This real quick, just side note. This is why campaigns sometimes are long <laughs> because it takes a long time to get stuff out. And people are like, yeah. I want this to be quicker. And it's like, there's way too much to digest in such a short time. So it's got to be part of our lives where we're socially active in political, you know, proposals constantly. Unfortunately, that's reality. That's the way that it is yeah. trying to create a perfect union. So we're going to move on. Uh, but you know, we're going to talk about the mayor vacancy in Springfield, Oregon. I know that I had you on as a guest, you and Chris, Wh or Chris McAllister. Mm -hmm. And, uh, that was a great episode that we had a conversation about the mayor vacancy. That was shocking. I'm glad we did it when we did, because we didn't know why, uh, Christine Lundberg had resigned at the time. Cause it doesn't matter for the whole future of the, of the city, the town we're moving on, you know? And now the vacancy, uh, I watched the entire city council meeting. That's my first one ever. It was, I like the, the, the setup and I like the ability to play video games while I watch it so that I'm not <laughs> bored out of my mind, but uh, I encourage everybody. I'm going to be posting links to those city council meetings as they arrive, as they come up, because I encourage people to just get involved, multitask, watch, you know, have two screens. We all have them nowadays, but I followed it. And there was some really interesting things because they didn't pick a mayor. You know, I, I had promoted, basically saying, mm -hmm. you know, here, they're going to appoint a new mayor, but they didn't because I get it. They've waited too long. Essentially, they should have done something you had written um, to the council asking them to let, you know, basically let the voters to decide. And you can speak on that a little bit more. Yeah. So I wrote an op-ed in the Cresswell. No, it's not the Cresswell. It's the, now it's just Chronicle. the Chronicle and it serves Springfield, Cresswell and Pleasant Hill. I wrote an op-ed for them about, um, encouraging the city council to have an open process to fill the mayor, to allow any citizen in Springfield to apply and to interview all of the credible, serious applicants, and then to pick, basically have some time for community feedback and then to pick. Uh, they chose not to do any of that, that they chose to restrict consideration only to current counselors, because in their idea is that they and some of these people are my friends, I don't mean to put them on blast, but like that they are the only people who are qualified to be mayor, which I think is ludicrous, um, that that was their position and that they uh, would have some questions that they would answer and then they would pick. And so four people uh, put their names forward, Sean Van Gordon, who represents Ward 1, Gateway, uh, Sherry Moore, my counselor who represents Ward 3 and is retiring at the end of the year, uh, Leonard Stair, uh, who represents Ward 4, and is uh, uh, he works for the Teamsters Local 206, and Joe Pichonary, who represents Thurston in uh, Ward 6. So the four of them put their uh, names forward, and there were a bunch of shenanigans, and they failed to select an interim mayor. And that, that I mean, that's a huge, that's a huge failure, um, that there's no way to really make that, they, you know, I, it has been described to me in kinder terms, and that that's a bunch of bunk, that they failed to do a very basic and core function of their job, which is to fill a vacancy. Right. And that the argument that the only people who are qualified to be mayor can't even fill the vacancy is political malpractice. Right, like, right. That's horrible. Like that's a level of ineptitude that is Eugene City Council level horrible. Right. And the no, likes to say that we're different, but it turns out we're really not. And so sure. some of the, like what happened was, why that happened is that Joe Pichonary, um had the votes lined up before the meeting to be appointed mayor for the rest of the year. And then he wanted to drop, and then he would not be mayor for two more years because he has a new city council term that he just won in the, in the May primary that would begin in January. And then Sean Van Gordon, who was not up this May, did not put his name into consideration for the short-term vacancy until the first of the year, but then he would put his name in the long-term vacancy so that he wouldn't risk giving up his city council yeah, seat. Because he would lose his seat. Mayor. Yeah. So like, are you in or out? But right. the issue with Joe Pichonary is that Joe Pichonary is a crook. 
that he is a Brady listed ex cop who is not qualified to testify in court, according to the district attorney. And the reason for that is that he was um, he stole from the city of Springfield and he stole from Lane County. And he did that by going on a trip, a business trip, and then submitting reimbursements to both Lane County and to the city of Springfield. The sheriff at the time, Byron Trapp, who is also a Republican, made him retire so that he wouldn't risk having an investigation and possibly lose his pension. And so he had to retire from the Lane County Sheriff Office in disgrace after the district attorney put him on the Brady list and that the Springfield City Council did not express disapproval, didn't have anything to say about that. And so he stayed on the council and that now he's one of the longest tenured council members and that he put his name into consideration for mayor. And he had the votes lined up until there was public outrage that the city council would even consider appointing a Brady listed ex-cop liar and criminal to be the mayor of Springfield. That that's, I mean, I'm talking fast because it's ludicrous that that is where we are at. And so what happened is they didn't pick and that because he was the president of the council this year, he's still kind of acting there. He's running it. Right. Right. And he says he's not, and it's silly. So now I think it's fair I think it's unfair to say for Sh- Councillor Sean Van Gordon that he's in or out, like, or you're either in or out. I, I mean, because I think that he understands that he does have the long-term goal, but I mean, why would you want to appoint yourself for two months when he would actually not have as much pull? He was elected to his seat, and then he gives it to the same people that you're saying are too incompetent to pick the mayor would be choosing his replacement. Is that correct? I mean, the... Well, but, but see... He could also get the next two years, right? Like, right. What that tells me um, is that, and I, you know, I don't mean this to be too critical. Sure. Like, so if you have the votes, they're going to appoint you now, and they're going to appoint you in two months. We would hope they're going to. They're if they've already appointed you once, unless you do something that is such a catastrophic blunder, they're going to vote for you again because it's not like the players have even changed that much right? That when Christine Lumberg was still mayor, there was a block of three councilors who provided her with a majority. Sean Van Gordon, Marilee Woodrow, and Joe Pichonieri would vote with the mayor all the time. And so he should, he's building off of a strong base of support, right? That Steve Moe in Ward 2 is a swing vote. And then Sherry and Leonard are both Democrats. Leonard much more progressive than Sherry. And so what you, I mean, what you have here is like, if you can't win the votes the first time, why would you, like, I, I don't understand it. Like that it's, it is a level of cautiousness and self-protection that I don't think is very becoming of an elected official. Um, I think that if you're in, you should go for it. If you have a vision for the city, put it out there and be evaluated on the merits of your vision. And that if you don't have the votes, then you don't have them and that you shouldn't go for it. Right. Like that, that, I mean, unless, you know, there's reasons to go for an appointment or a, um, you know, an election is to raise an issue or something like that, that you could do that. But just like the whole, the machinations around the whole thing is absurd when, you know, Hey, pick, in what I mean, ultimately, like what it all goes back to is if none of the current counselors could get a majority of votes to be appointed, why in the hell did they not have an open process so that right. other citizens right. who maybe could have earned a majority of votes had the opportunity to apply for it? It's right. I mean, it is blatant self-dealing and it's unbecoming of the city of Springfield. And unfortunately, the Springfield taxpayers are the ones who pay the price. Right. Now, on Councillor Van Gordon's decision to withhold his name from the first for the two month term. I actually kind of like them, the move. I, I get what you're saying and I, and I respect it and I'm not disagreeing. I just, I just say that I like the move because it made it easier for me to understand the whole process, but that's just me because I'm so new to the game. <laughs> you know, I'm so new to understanding it and it's a difficult thing, giving up that seat that you potentially, but I hear you. I hear what you're saying. So yeah. So the everybody, though, is that he, he would have had the votes. Yeah, I mean, right. I, I believe that he would have. He's he's clearly of the incumbent counselors. He's clearly the most qualified. He's right. clearly the person who has a vision for the city. He's not a Democrat. He's a non-affiliated voter. Um, you know, I don't agree with him on politics all the time, but he's a good person who cares yeah. about Springfield. That he hey, he's so smart, and that he would have the votes 
if yeah. he would have gone for it, he would have had the votes and that, but he didn't do it. And that it's, it, I mean, I don't, I don't understand it. Like yeah. I, I don't understand why. Councillor Van Gordon has proven to me to be extremely approachable. And that's like why number one qualification for somebody that I could support is if they're approachable to me, because we live in a small town, you know? So, so anyway, there, I got so much to cover that I just want people to understand if you're listening or watching this, the best thing you can do is just pay attention. I'll be posting the links. You can go to, uh, you know, Springfield city council's website and they'll have dates for when the city council meetings will happen. And like I said, do what I did. I've got two screens and I watch the, I watch the, <laughs> the, the I watch it on one screen. And I play Madden on the other. So, so I have to be on mute. Cause if I score a touchdown and I, I yell or something, no, but anyway, it's, it's really cool. And I'm going to start doing more of it. Uh, that's why I know my partner Dana is a keeper because she was in the other room doing some work on two screens, watching it as well. And then we had a great conversation about it. We're officially old people. Oh, now. Man, that's awesome. So, yeah. So it's pretty cool. We're officially old people. I knew it would happen, but it's now is the time. So uh, we are coming up on the end of this election. That's that started. It feels like 10 years ago. And so we're kind of coming up on the final push. And I think people are pretty nauseated with the federal national stuff. And so I've really tried to focus a lot more on local politics. One of the things that I wanted to ask you about and have you kind of touch on is some of the unsung heroes in Lane County local elections. The people that don't get a lot of credit that the average person might not know are really what makes the whole process work. Mm -hmm. So just give me some, you know, and not names. You had mentioned uh, earlier about someone, you know, making a push uh, to collect ballots and get, get ballots uh, delivered. But, you know, we're not talking names. We're talking about certain people in different roles mm -hmm. or positions or whatnot. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So um, there's a lot of people. Um, one of the things about politics is it like, yeah, it can bring out the worst in people, but it also brings out the best in people of watching people come together to form coalition and to advocate for our community values. So of people who have really stood out this year, um, I want to give a huge, massive shout out to Carly Gabrielson and Sierra Dameron and Sophia Roberts and all of Team DeFazio, um, that they are going pedal to the metal. Um, the Republicans are pouring millions and millions of dollars into our district to try to prop up an unqualified bench warmer named Alex Scarlatos for Congress. Uh, this guy could not even get elected Sorry, to Douglas. Sorry, I didn't catch that. Oh, Siri is going on. No, this guy could not even be elected to the Douglas County Board of Commissioners um, that he lost an election in a Republican county, but they have put him up and spent so much money on him. And that what Peter DeFazio has is that people power that he is supported deeply by his neighbors in Springfield and by our neighbors in our community. And so that Team DeFazio has been building that coalition and turning out the vote. And I think that Peter is going to win. Uh, he's going to pull it out. It's going to be great. Yeah. Um, another great, uh, you know, unsung heroes, people who are punching way above their weight class is in the, on the Oregon coast uh, in Florence. There is a group of Democrats called the Florence Area Democratic Club. There, uh, the president of that group is the district leader for House District 9. Her name's Karen Radke. And that they are a group who every two years during the general election um, pulls together. They open up an office out in Florence. So the DPLC technically has two offices, one in Eugene and one in Florence. But that, that office in Florence is all the work of this Florence Area Democratic Club. That these are folks who are getting out the vote in a place where, you know, certainly being based out of Eugene and Springfield, that we would have a really hard time coordinating sustained action. We could go out for a canvas over the weekend or something, but that they are killing it out there, that they are um, helping people vote, helping people contact county elections to solve problems with their ballots, making calls. Normally they canvas, but we're not canvassing this year. Um, yeah. They're getting the signs out to rural Democrats. And so that they are doing some really great work. Um, I also want to give a shout out to Ven Wild. Ven is the election protection coordinator for the DPLC. And so Ven's responsibility is to recruit volunteers to like observe the election machines and the ballot counting and all of that stuff. And so shameless plug, uh, if you, anyone watching wants to volunteer to 
learn, I mean, and this is a great opportunity to learn more about the voting process from a nonpartisan perspective of like, how do they actually count the votes? What they're going to do is they're setting it up on Zoom or GoToMeeting so you can watch remotely from your house. And then if you know, if you, you don't have to confront anybody, if you see something irregular, you just report it. Um, that doesn't ever happen in Lane County because our right. elections are, are pretty solid. But if anybody would like to volunteer, they can uh, email chair at dplc.org. That's my email and I'll put you in touch with Ven. But that, that is a really important job is to make sure that the process is going the way that it is supposed to go. Right. Because normally yeah. the people that work on the day of the election are historically an older crowd. So, you know, like the people that, have, that volunteer to count the ballots and whatnot and do that kind of work the day of the election. So Lane County does not use volunteers to count the ballot, that they hire temporary election workers wow. so that there's okay. a little bit more accountability there. Sure. But we count on volunteers to observe the count. Right. And that, you know, the Republicans can send their volunteers. I don't know if they do that. I, I have not ever been super involved in the election monitoring but um, that that is a, a job where it you can you learn a lot by doing it. You learn all about and it's I, I have been told that that is the best way for a skeptic to become a believer in vote by mail. Right. Uh, and then the last group of people that I want to just give a shout out to is all of the volunteers who are writing postcards, who are calling voters from their house. Um, neighborhood leaders in the Democratic Party who are reaching out to their own neighbors and folks who are volunteering on Democratic campaigns, the coordinated campaign, volunteering for Joe Biden, volunteering for Peter DeFazio, volunteering with the DPLC um, on the coast. Uh, we got Melissa Cribbins running for an open state Senate seat and Cal Makamoto running for an open house seat and Melissa Cribbins' campaign manager, Emily Mooney, is doing just an incredible job um, putting that race together, getting the volunteers mobilized. And so <clears throat> that we have this year, I haven't seen the stats, but it seems like more people are participating than ever before because you can just log in from your house and call. Right. You can just get a stack of postcards sent to you for you to fill out. And so I, I mean, I just have so much uh, respect and consideration for all of the folks who are participating in this is a really hard year. And so it's, uh, when I log on to Zoom to the like, you know, the pre-debate watch party and see all the faces, it, um, you know, it really well, makes me smile. Yeah. So now if somebody's interested in becoming a neighborhood leader, uh, they can contact Lane County Democratic Party. The de is that correct? Yep. It's, so if uh, you message me at the podcast, I can get you in, in link to that as well. So, you know, you can just Google uh, Democratic Party of Lane County, send them an email that you're interested to become a neighborhood leader, and they can work with you to make that happen. So that's something that I've done. And, and so, yeah, so that's awesome. I mean, it's always just interesting to see what different people have to say about the inner workings behind the scenes and who really deserves a shout out, you know, so that's, I appreciate that. So we're getting to the end of this, <clears throat> you know, dates, October 27th is the last day to mail your ballot in the show notes. I've provided a, a link to where you can find out based on your address, the closest Dropbox location. You can also just Google uh, Dropbox locations, Lane County, and it'll, it'll tell you where to have, where to drop your, your ballot in. We're, you know, this is less, you know, just over a week away. Uh, this is the most, they say this every time, but this is absolutely the most important election of our lifetime. It's yeah, not, we say that a lot, but it turns out that this year it's true. Yeah. So, cause this is, you know, this is the last, it, it could either Biden will be president or Trump will be the last president. So we'll see, <laughs> we'll see, we'll see how it goes. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Yeah. But Chris Wig, it's really awesome to, to have you. I'm, I'm grateful to build a strong relationship with you and a friendship and, and, you know, you work tirelessly behind the scenes. And so I think you deserve a lot of credit as well. Uh, I don't know. I don't know how you do it. I, I know that your life is on zoom these days. So I drink a lot of coffee. Yeah, me too. So, so I appreciate you. And uh, again, one more plug for the measure 110. you know, in the show notes, read uh, Chris Wiggs co-authored op-ed uh, co-authored with Patty Parlow, Parlo, the district attorney. I think we really need to understand this before we support it, you know, at least so that Chris Wig is saying vote no on 110. 
I am, but I, I would temper that a little bit with, I, I hope everybody that listens to this who hasn't voted yet votes no. However, like I just want to say the last word is, this is an issue about which reasonable people disagree. Um, and that the disagreement I think is not about, uh, the least the disagreement that I'm hearing is not about, do we lock people up or do we help them? That's not it. It's about how and what is the best way to help people who are experiencing and suffering from the disease of addiction. Right. And so I don't, I don't demean anybody who voted yes because they aspire to building a better system. And that either way, if this passes, we're all gonna have to come together to find a way to implement it in a way that works for getting people into recovery. And that if it doesn't pass, then we're gonna need to work together to find a way to get more money into addiction treatment. So right. that this is, whether it passes or not, this is like the next step, not the last step. And that it is too important for us to try to separate, you know, lose friendships for life over a one measure on the ballot that we need to be able to come back together after it's and over that, so that we can get help for people who need it. This isn't a, a left right issue. I mean, it's interesting because I think that there's some crossover between, between progressives and libertarians in support of this. But that being said, I think that's important for all politics. That one thing that we've all forgotten is that we're really what we're squabbling over is a difference in strategy. You know, a lot of times people want to focus so much on the emotions of it. And so sometimes it's just a difference in strategy. Other times there's a definitive, absolutely not situation in, in stuff that's been proposed. But yeah, I mean, we do need to remember that at the end of the day, like you said, when, it, when a move is made or, or a ballot passes or, or doesn't pass, that's not the end of it. We're still going to continue working to perfect this union. So try to be good to each other. And just remember, as we get closer to the election, if you disagree with something vehemently, but you care about the person, just keep scrolling. <laughs> you know, like there's no reason to attack each other at this point. Just I've had to learn my lesson and I know that I've had people block me, unfriend me, whatever. I'm an asshole, but deal with it. But like anyway, so I got to pick play a song, get out of here. Chris Wig, thank you very much. It's always a, a treat to talk to you. I'm going to end this with one of my songs. Uh, this is me, Patty Rose. Shout out to my good friend, Dave Uberti, a.k.a. Edward Outward, because this is his song that I did a cover of. It's called Long Lost Day. So this is me, Patty Rose, with Long Lost Day. Chris Wig, take care. Like a plant that's all gone bad Like a falling rain I feel the strain of sympathy like almost every day I don't agree with anything Not a word they say Like a plan that's all gone bad Like a falling rain I've been wasting A long lost day You say you've changed in almost every way I've been wasting A long lost day You say you've changed In almost every way Like a plan that's all gone bad Like a falling rain I feel the strain of sympathy like almost every day I don't agree with anything Not a word they say Like a plan that's all gone bad Like a falling rain I've been wasting A long lost day Yeah.